So this morning, we're going to be working through Isaiah, just the first 39 chapters. That's all. So I knew that would be good to, to start out with this morning. Um, maybe you read about the woman in Alabama who uh, reportedly had terminal cancer. Uh, a couple of... Should I turn it off? Yes, sir. You're not on. Okay. Using pulpit. Okay. I need to stay right here then. Uh, the, uh, maybe you read about a woman in Alabama. She uh, apparently had terminal cancer. A couple of GoFundMe pages were set up to help her. One was titled, Mom Has Terminal Cancer Disney Trip. She had uh, um, um, a boy who was a minor. Her family and friends were working to help her and support her in, in her efforts to raise money. Uh, her boy was grieving the fact that his mother was going to die, only she wasn't. It was a ruse to get money, and that is exactly what she did. She got a lot of money. Over $264,000 was given to help this woman who lied and said that she had cancer. Well, her lies were exposed, um, and now she's facing the judgment of the legal system, facing the consequences of her lies. But it leaves us with a question today. What about the consequences of our sin? What about the things that we've done that are wrong? Will we, too, face judgment? Will we face judgment? Well, we're beginning a new four-week series this morning called Hope Rises, and it's going to be a big-picture view of the book of Isaiah. Now, over the next four weeks, I hope that, that you'll have a good idea of what the book is about, the major themes of the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 1, claims that the prophet Isaiah is the author of the book. Now, this was the view that Jews and Christians held for really uh, 2,000 years, basically. But following the Enlightenment in the 17th century, a movement called Higher Criticism began to develop. And basically, this was an effort to take the Bible apart and to say, well, maybe this really wasn't written by Isaiah. Maybe this part was written by someone else. And so after that movement began to gain traction, some folks said, well, Isaiah was written by two different authors. You got the first part of Isaiah, one author, the second part, and then perhaps it was three. And then there is, among others, suggested an untold number of authors for the book of Isaiah. Now, one of the primary reasons that Isaiah's authorship of the book of Isaiah was rejected is because with pinpoint accuracy, he foretold the future. Even predicting or talking about Cyrus becoming king of the Persian Empire some 200 years before that happened. And so you've got all of these academics who said, well, there's no way that a prophet could predict something like that 200 years in advance. So this must have been a later addition to the book of Isaiah. Maybe there were disciples of Isaiah who wrote in his name or, or something like that. Also, some argue because there's a, a style change between the first 39 chapters and the remaining chapters that that style change is too drastic to be written by a single author. I think the wise interpreter will take the Bible at its word, that the book of Isaiah was written indeed by the prophet Isaiah. Now, why should we say this with confidence? Well, for one, do we really believe there's a God who is supernatural, who can create the universe? Surely he could give detailed events of the future to one of his prophets. Why would that cause us to doubt 
that Isaiah is the author if we really believe in God, if we really believe his word. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us that a prophet of God was able to give pinpoint accuracy about the future. That shouldn't cause us to doubt the authorship of Isaiah. In addition, there's no evidence historically that Isaiah ever, sep uh, uh, ever circulated as separate parts. All the evidence we have suggests that it was a single book. And New Testament authors routinely quote from sections of Isaiah, and they attribute their citations to the prophet Isaiah. In fact, in John 12, verses 38 through 41, the apostle John quotes from, from both parts of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters and the remaining chapters, and he cites Isaiah as the author of both. Now, there are many other reasons to believe that Isaiah is the author of the entire book, but time prevents further consideration. Isaiah began prophesying around 740 B.C., and he prophesied in 701 B.C., and perhaps his ministry went even longer, but we can say that Isaiah was prophesying for at least 40 years. This morning, we're talking about events that happened nearly 3,000 years ago. Uh, we're going to begin by getting an overview of the first 39 chapters, and then we'll spend a little time focusing in on chapter 1 as sort of a summary of the other chapters. Uh, at this time in, in the uh, history of God's people, Assyria was a rising world power. They had gained dominance. They were a threat. And Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, had made an alliance with Syria against uh, Assyria. So you had this Israeli-Syrian alliance to oppose Assyria if they attacked. And they asked the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, whose name was Ahaz, to join them in their alliance. And Ahaz said, you know what, guys, I don't think I want to do that. And because Ahaz rejected this alliance, they became a threat to his north. Syria, the Israeli-Syrian alliance became a threat to the southern kingdom, uh, God's people, Judah. Now let's take a look at chapters 1 through 12. It begins... Uh, with oracles. The, the prophecies begin with oracles against or prophecies against God's people. But all along the way, you get glimpses of hope, pictures of the fact that God longs to show mercy. So, so you see this judgment of God against his people's sins. And in Isaiah 6, you see the call of, I, of Isaiah and you see God's majesty and his holiness. Now, remember a moment ago, I told you that, that the king of Judah, Ahaz, was worried because to his north, uh, Syria and Israel had made an alliance together, and so he began to be fearful that they were going to attack him. And the prophet Isaiah urged King Ahaz to trust God. He, he said to Ahaz, just trust God. This is a chance to, to trust him and see that he'll come through with, uh, for you. But what did Ahaz do? Well, he made an alliance with the Assyrians against the Syrians and the Israelis. And he became a vassal state. It cost the country a lot because they had to pay a high tribute to Assyria. Now, in chapters 13 through 23, you're going to see prophecies against the nations, oracles about God's judgment upon the nations. Now, remember that Ahaz, the king of Israel, or pardon me, the king of Judah, was trusting in foreign powers. He wasn't trusting in God. And these foreign powers would soon face God's own judgment. That's what the prophet is suggesting. He said, you're trusting these surrounding nations, but don't you see these nations are going to face God's judgment? You're trusting in the wrong thing. And we see that he's sovereign. God is sovereign over the nations. Now, in chapters 24 through 27, we see God's sovereignty over the entire world. We get a glimpse of the future destruction that's going to come to the whole world. 
And what we get, we get the idea that God is sovereign, not just over this piece of the earth, but that he is sovereign over the whole world. Yes, over all the universe. And that he will exercise his judgment while rescuing his people. In verses 28 through 35, Isaiah addresses the question of who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the nations or are you going to trust God? In verses 36 through 39, these are sort of transitional chapters. This is what happens. In 722, Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom Israel, just completely wiped them out. And in 701, Assyria mounted an attack against Judah, against Jerusalem. And King... Um, the king of Judah, Hezekiah, was, was troubled, and he nearly made an alliance with Egypt. But the prophet Isaiah said to him, King, don't make an alliance with Egypt. Trust God. And so even though he was tempted to trust the nations, uh, the king trusted in God. And this is what God did. God rescued him in an amazing way. The Assyrians were just wiped out by, by God himself. Well, after this point, Hezekiah, the king, became very sick, even to the point of death. And he called out to God in prayer, and he said, God, please extend my life. And God granted his prayer. He extended his life. And there was such a great celebration that the king of Babylon sent an envoy from Babylon to Judah to, to, to bring a gift to Hezekiah because of his recovery from, from his near-death illness. And so uh, the king showed this envoy around, this envoy from Babylon around, and he showed them all the treasures of Israel. All that he had, in a sense, there's a little bit of pride here. Hey, look at what I have. Look at how good this is. There's also a hint that maybe King Hezekiah is considering an alliance against Assyria with Babylon. Maybe that's kind of floating around in his mind. But at any point, the prophet Isaiah came to Hezekiah and he said, You know, you showed these Babylonians all of the treasures of Israel. I want you to know that all those treasures are going to go to Babylon. That's what's going to happen. And so we see a transition from trouble with Assyria to trouble with Babylon. And the second part of Isaiah will deal with these ideas. So as you think of big picture, chapters 1 through 39, the summary is this. God will not tolerate rebellion in his people. He will bring judgment. Now we're going to spend some time in chapter 1 together. Let's read Isaiah 1, verses 1 through 20. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Verse 7. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire, and your very presence, foreigners, devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. As we look at our text this morning, we'll see that rebellion brings the judgment of God. 
Rebellion brings the judgment of God. So uh, let's consider a couple of ways that we see God's judgment. First, rebellion against God leads to brokenness and spiritual blindness. Rebellion against God leads to brokenness and spiritual blindness. Look in verse 2. The setting here is something like a trial. Here's a courtroom, and and charges are being brought against God's people. There's an arraignment. The charges are are being read, and here in verse 2, God calls the heavens and the earth as witnesses. After all, the created order will surely side with the Creator. And so he says, the earth and the heavens, they are my witness. And he says to his people, like children, I reared you up. I raised you like children. Now remember, God's people, he chose he chose his people. Out of, out of the nations of the earth, God, God chose them specially. They, they were his. And, and he promised them that he would, that he would give them uh, a, a land and, and he would bless their people and they would be a blessing to, to the nations. God made them all of these promises and God followed through. Remember the great rescue from Egypt. And God says, I reared you up. I brought you up. But... You rebelled against me. This is the heart of a father who, who says to his children, I, I loved you. I, I cared for you. You, you rejected me. You, you walked away. That's what God is saying. These are the charges that God is bringing against his people. I loved you, and you walked away. Verse 3, he says, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib or its master's feeding trough. What is Isaiah saying? He's saying... I loved you in such a way that your love for me should have almost been instinctual. You should have just loved me in return. Even the ox knows who its owner is. Even the donkey recognizes that its master is the one who provides for it or cares for it. But you, my people, you don't even see that, that I own you, that you're mine. You're my possession. You don't even recognize that I'm the one who's going to care for you, that I'm the one who's going to provide for you. Oh, even the donkey knows that. In a sense, God is saying you are living in a way that's dumber than a donkey. A foolish way to live. Israel doesn't even know the things that these animals know. Verse 4, you see the agony. Israel, but why? Why are you like this? He says you're a people who's weighed down with sin. It's It's as if sin is just stacked upon them and they're struggling underneath the weight of sin. He says you're the offspring of evildoers. Now, who were God's people supposed to be? They were supposed to be the offspring of Abraham, God's chosen. But instead, they had become the offspring of wickedness, of evil. He says they've forsaken the Lord. Now, understand There's a sense in which purposefulness is present in this word that that, that we think of as forsaken. They have purposely walked away from me. They've abandoned me. In fact, they've become completely estranged. They are like aliens to me. I don't even know who they are. That's what God is is saying here in verse 5. He says, why will you be struck down? Why do you keep wanting to get beaten up? Why do you keep rebelling? Look at your head. Your head is sick. Look at your heart. It's weak. It's fainting. He says from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, you're you're banged up. You're beaten up. There's bruises. There's sores. There's oozing, raw, open wounds that haven't been treated. And what you see is Israel doesn't even see these things. Israel doesn't even understand the situation that she's in. 
In verse 7, he turns his attention to, to their nation. He says, your country, it's desolate. It's, it's destroyed. It's been burned with fire. In your presence, before your very eyes, you've watched foreigners destroy your land that you worked so hard for, that, that I gave you. And then in verse 8, you see God's heart of tenderness. Daughter of Zion, he, he calls his people his daughter. You're like a booth that was left in a vineyard. Now, the vineyards and the fields were often a good ways from, from the, the houses. And so a temporary shelter, a little shelter would be put up in a field or a vineyard so that you would have some, some uh, shelter overnight if you were out working the fields. And here, the prophet says you're like an abandoned shelter in the middle of a field. Look at what's happened to you, dilapidated, destroyed. In verse 9, he says if God hadn't, hadn't saved a few survivors, surely we would have all perished like Sodom and Gomorrah. If God hadn't held back, if God hadn't left some survivors. In other words, we see a glimpse of the mercy of God in the midst of the judgment of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen, um, I know many of you have, a little banny rooster, a little bantam rooster. Uh, you know, this thing's six inches tall, and he thinks he's so big that he could take uh, a rooster that's, you know, four or five times his size or, or more, two foot tall. You know, he's got the heart. He's got this heart, but he doesn't have the body to, to back it up. And this little rooster will, will pick a fight with a big rooster, and you're going, buddy, this is not going to be good for you. But it's as if that little banny rooster can't see. He can't get that this is not going to bid well for him. And that's exactly what God is saying to his people here. Don't you see that you are picking a fight that you can't win? Don't you see that in your sinfulness you're bludgeoning yourself? You're destroying yourself. You're, you're harming yourself. And you don't even see it. This is a part of the judgment of God against our sin. You see, God allows our hearts to become hardened he allows our eyes to become blind when we reject him, when we reject him, when we rebel against him over and over. Our eyes begin to, to become blind. Our hearts begin to become hard. And it's a part of, of God's judgment. You want it? God says you can have it. And that's what's happened to his people. It's a terrible place to be. It's a devastating place to be. So we've seen that rebellion against God leads to brokenness. It leads to spiritual blindness. Second, rebellion against God leads to a loss of awe for God and leads to false spirituality. It leads to a loss of awe for God and to false spirituality. Look in verse 10. Prophet Isaiah calls out, hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom. He calls them the, the leadership of God's people. The rulers of Sodom. What's he saying? He's saying, you are like the people of Sodom who outright rejected my ways. And he says to the people, you're the people of Gomorrah. But listen, give ear, take heed to, to what I'm saying. In verse 11, God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? He says, I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. 
They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So in verse 11, he says, What good are all of your sacrifices? You bring all of these sacrifices to the temple. And God says, I've had enough of your sacrifices. Keep them. Don't bring me another one. I don't delight in them. He goes on to say in verse 13, your offerings are vain. They're pointless. He says, I can't endure iniquity in solemn assembly. In other words, the people were going through all the motions of religiosity. They were observing the feasts and the festivals, the new moons. They were making sacrifices, all of these kinds of things that, that was required of them. But God says, Regarding these, I can't stand your sin and your solemn assemblies. In other words, you gather together for supposed worship, and yet your lives are filled with sin, and I can't stand it. I cannot bear it. In verse 14, he says, in fact, my soul hates this. Your religious observances have become a burden to me. A burden. I'm weary of them, God says. I'm tired of you playing a game. I'm tired of you saying one thing and doing something completely different. He continues in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, and this is the idea of spreading out your hands in, in prayer. He says, you know what, when you do that, I, I'm hiding my eyes. I will not see. And when you call out to me in prayer, he says, you know what, I won't listen. I don't want to hear it. Why does God say that to his own people? Because his own people weren't coming with hearts that were committed to him. They were just going through religious motions, hoping to sort of placate God so that he would sort of bless them, kind of bringing a little bit, hoping that would be fine, but then living however they wanted to live. God says, I've had enough of that. Your hands are full of blood. What, what does he mean here? You are dripping with guilt. Your guilt is sickening. Your hands are full of blood. Verse 16, he says, wash yourselves. Clean the evil. Clean up the evil in your lives. So notice what is happening here. God is saying to his people, you can't go through the religious motions and then live however you want. The, the tenor of your life has to change. You can't claim to love me and do all these church things but then live like the devil you, you can't do that he says so clean up wash yourself quit quit doing the things that you're doing quit going those places doing those things quit being those kind of people he says cease to do evil stop being wicked sometimes 
We have a tendency to make things far more complicated than they need to be. Here, the prophet is making things quite clear. Just stop doing things that are evil. That's his word to us. And then in verse 17, he says, learn to do good. Now, notice the word learn, an interesting word. It's, in a sense, God's saying, I know that changing is going to be a process. But learn to do good. But begin to change. And he's saying, I'm going to be with you in that. I'm going to bless you in that. But begin to change. You may not be able to, to just flip the switch because you're a person and we're all weak. We all sin. We all mess up. But he's saying, learn to, ch- learn to do good. Learn to change. And, and then he gives us some examples of what it means to do good. He says, seek justice. In other words, seek that which is right. Don't be a part of, of, of something that's, that's wrong or that doesn't have integrity. And seek to, 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 to be with those who are, who are oppressed. Seek to be with the people who are, who are hurting. And he gives an example of the fatherless and the widow. Be for, for those who, who are fatherless. Be for the widows. This is what it means to, to follow me. In other words, our lives, our claim to follow him has to be lived out first by, by walking in holiness and purity, and second, by sacrificial love for others, particularly those who are in need or, or who are hurting. In verse 18, he says, come now, let's reason together. What's God saying to his people? He's saying, I want to give you another chance. You've been here, but let's do something different. He says, your sins have been like scarlet. They've been deep red. You are guilty. But he says, you know what? I'll wash them white as snow. He's using these powerful word pictures here. White as snow. He says, your your sins were crimson. Oh, but I'll make them like wool. What a beautiful picture of God's forgiveness, of God's cleansing. In verse 19, he says, if you're willing, that is, if the desire of your heart is toward me and you strive to walk in obedience, then you can know I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to I'm going to help you in that. But in verse 20, if you refuse and rebel, you can count on something you're going to face by judgment. That's what he says. You're going to be devoured by the sword. Men, do you remember if you're married when you ask your wife out on that first date? My gut, now there's probably a handful of exceptions, but my gut is that most of you you held the door open, you used mouthwash, you, you know, you sat there at the table and you weren't staring at your phone, but you were looking into her eyes, trying to carefully hear everything that she said, showing her attention. And it's the same way now, 10 years, 15, 20, 40 years later, right, ladies? They're the same. Maybe not. Um, maybe not. Um, We should take this, men, as a reminder that if the Lord has blessed us with a wife, mine's not here, so so I'm good, right? Somebody's going to tell her. I know that's going to happen. But anyways, we we need to be good to them. We we need to to care for them and and treat treat them with love and with tenderness and not take them for granted. And here, it's as if God is saying to his people, you've lost your love for me. You kind of go through motions, but it doesn't mean anything. And God is saying, this is not okay. Seek me. Love me. Treasure me. That's what God is saying. You're chasing after all these things. You've lost your awe of me. And yet that's a part of the judgment of God. When we begin to prioritize other things above God, soon God doesn't mean that much to us. 
It's strange to think about, but we begin to make, maybe even not purposely something, we begin to make this important and that important and this important, and before long, we've lost any desire to love God. We've lost our awe of Him. But God is saying it must not be. I'm not calling you to, to, to go through the motions. I'm calling you to love me deeply. So let's think together about how these truths should affect our lives. Well, number one, we should recognize that sin blinds us, and we don't even realize that we're blind. Sin blinds us, and we don't even realize that we're blind. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. This is what happens when we dilly-dally around with sin, when we neglect our relationship with God, we begin to go blind, but, but we don't see it. It's like this, a person who's physically blind, they, they recognize they're blind, and, and they take steps to protect themselves and, 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 the, and they work through how to, how to live without being able to see. But the, the problem here with, with spiritual blindness is that we're blind, but we don't know we're blind. It's we're blind and we don't see our need. And there's a danger here. This is a part of the judgment of God. When we say to God, I'm going to go my own way and rebel against you, God says, okay, you can do that. And in the process, we lose our sight. We lose our sight spiritually, and we begin to beat our heads against a wall. We begin to do what that banny rooster did, picking a fight that we can't win. And from head to toe, we begin to show the bruises of a life lived apart from loving God. So today, quit beating your head against that wall. Ask the Lord to help you to see, to give you a heart that longs for Him. Many of you have, have read or have seen the movie, The Lord of the Rings. Do you remember the hobbit named Smeagol? Well, Smeagol turned into something terrible in The Lord of the Rings. He, he had a selfish drive for this ring. He had to have the ring, and he didn't care about anyone else. And this ring began to change who he was, and he became the slimiest of all the creatures of The Lord of the Rings. He, he had to have the ring, and yet the ring was transforming Smeagol into a monster, into Gollum. And you see, that's exactly what happens in our lives when we begin to let sin rule and reign. It's little at first. You don't notice it first, but eventually it changes you into something that's awful and terrible. It, it makes us different. It makes us proud. It makes us arrogant. It makes us bitter. It makes us filthy. And the list could go on and on and on. It begins to change who we are, but we don't see it. That's the danger. So when we play around with sin, we risk spiritual blindness. Number two, ask God to break your heart over your sin and to open your eyes. Ask God to break your heart over your sin and to open your eyes. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and a humbled heart, God. So where is it that you're wandering away from the Lord? Have you given your heart to some idol? Is there an activity in your life that really, if truth be told, you love that more than you love God? Is there a person in your life that truth be told, you love the person more than you love God? Where is it that you have given your heart? Or is it your priorities? If in reality, nearly everything is more important than your relationship with God. That's why you can never find time to read the Bible. That's why you can never find good time for prayer. Things like that. 
Is there some sin that you're giving into that's luring you away from your love for God? Maybe it's gossip. You love to just sort of traffic in, 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 in gossip. But you say to yourself, oh, it's just words. It's nothing big. And people need to know, you know. I mean, it's just, it be, they, they need to know. Or, or, or maybe it's porn. And you say to yourself, well, it's not that often that I'm, that I'm looking at this stuff. Or maybe it's anger. But after all, you had a reason to lose your cold. The way he acted, the way she acted. Maybe it's anger that's beginning to, to pull you away and to, to get a hold of you. Maybe it's bitterness. But you say to yourself, well, anybody would feel the same way if they'd been in my shoes. They would, they would be the same. You see, all of these ways we begin to excuse our sin, it's cataracts going onto our eyes and pairing our vision, eventually causing blindness. What is it that you are toying around with that's slowly, perhaps, maybe rapidly, pulling you away from your love and your passion for God? That's where God wants to work. So ask God to break your heart and open your eyes. Number three, God calls us to true devotion in our relationship with him, to true devotion. God's not looking for part-timers in our love for him. He's not looking for double living, double lives where I say one thing, I have a church life, a Christian life, and then I have a whole nother life. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for an, a person who, whose life is bound together with a passion and a love for him in, in all of life. He's not looking for rivals. He's not looking to compete with other loves in your life. He intends to be the central love of your life. He, he intends for us to love him more than anything else in all of life. Now, I suspect that there are a lot more Houston Astros fans today than there were this time last year. What do you, what do you bet? A lot more. Having won their first World Series, what a, what a great day in Houston, particularly after all they faced this year. But you know what? There are some fans who jumped on the bandwagon late in the game. And probably, if Houston has some bad seasons, you can check with the Cowboys on this, there's going to be a lot of fans who, unfortunately, there are going to be a lot of fans who kind of drift away. And what God is saying is this, I'm not looking for you to be a fan now and then. I'm looking for you to be a follower who is fully committed to me. That's what I'm calling you to. You see, God calls us to true devotion in our relationship with him. Number four, if we belong to God, we will face discipline. If we belong to God, we will face discipline, which is for our good. Hebrews 12, 9 and 10 says this, Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. What does this say? That because God loves us in the lives of his children, he disciplines us. He uses difficult times to shape us and to help us become more like him. So in our hard times, we don't want to run from him or lean away from him. We want to say to him, God, help me to change and become like you. Help me to know you more in the midst of this difficulty. So God disciplines his children for his good. Number five, apart from Christ you will face the judgment of God for eternity. Apart from Christ, you'll face the judgment of God for eternity. In Ephesians 1, 7, we have this precious promise. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches 
of his grace. You know, a moment ago, we talked about the stain of sin. Your hands are covered with blood. You are crimson. Your, your, your guilt is so apparent. But he said, your, your sin can be white as snow. And you know what? That's possible because the Father sent his own son who was white as snow, who was pure, who was sinless, to come and live on this earth, a sinless life on our behalf. He was nailed to the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve upon himself, the punishment that we deserve for our sin upon himself. He died on that cross. He was buried. He came back to life. What, what a glorious truth. And because of his blood, our guilt, our bloody hands can be washed clean. We don't have to live in rebellion against God. We can live as friends of God. We can live in peace with God. We can have a loving relationship with God. What incredible news. Now, I began this morning by talking about the lady from Alabama who had raised some 260-something thousand dollars by lying and telling her family or friends, even her boy, that she had cancer, that she was dying. Now, her ruse lasted for around two years, so she thought she was doing good. But she was sentenced to 25 years in prison, and she was sentenced to, of course, make restitution to her victims. But what about you? You probably haven't set up a fake GoFundMe page, but are you counting on living as if you're not going to get caught? Are you counting on the fact that, you know, you're not really going to face God's judgment? I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that if you belong to God, He will not tolerate your sin. He will bring discipline into your life to shape you, to change you. In love, He will discipline. And if you aren't His child, one day the, the Scriptures tell us that you'll face the awful judgment of God against sin. For two years, this woman's scheme was working. She thought she was doing great. She was banking it, bringing in the cash, not having to work, bringing in the cash. But it didn't last. It didn't last. And I want you to know, in rebellion, each one of us will face God's judgment because rebellion against, against God brings his judgment. So this morning, if you're a believer, ask God to break your heart over your sin. Even the sins that we, we classify as small sins. You know, there's, there's all these sins that we look at and go, whew, man, I'm not doing any of that stuff. And we're so relieved that we're righteous. But then there's so many sins over here that we classify as small, but before a God who's holy, they're not small at all. They're serious. They're filthy. We, we try to sanctify them and make them okay, but God says they're not okay. So today, if you're a believer, will you ask God, as I'm doing, to, to, to break your heart over the sin that's in your lives? Will you ask him to, to open your eyes where they're blind? The good news is just like he offered his people restoration, forgiveness, he offers you the same. God will forgive. And friend... If you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus, you don't have a personal relationship with him, maybe you're pretending that God's judgment's never going to come. Maybe you say to yourself, i got plenty of time. Or you say to yourself, hey, I'm not that bad. A lot of people are a lot worse than me. Or maybe you say, it's really not that big of a deal. I'll worry about it one of these days. But I want you to know it is a big deal. It's a serious deal. It matters not just for this life, but it matters for all eternity. Today, won't you turn from your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus?
Won't you find the favor of God in Christ? It'll make a difference in this life. But friend, it'll matter for all eternity because if you're in Christ, you will not face the eternal judgment of God. Instead, you'll enjoy, you'll enjoy Him and His presence forever. Join me in prayer.